I'm an entrepreneur, and I believe in winning. I've never signed up for anything so I want to be number two. That's not an American culture where you sign up and want to be third place. <laughs> the goal is to win. And in that space, wanting to be the ultimate winner, the toughest, most feared guy on the planet is a gang leader who runs the entire prison system, the ultimate shot caller. That's the number one guy. In politics, it's the president. It's not the governor. The number one politician is the president. The number one person in the penitentiary is a shot caller. The shot caller, not a shot caller. And I was like, I want to be the shot caller. And that was the goal. I want to be the top of the list. And I went on that quest, and I made it from number 20,000 to number three. Then I had an opportunity to become number one. That's Andre Norman, best-selling author of Ambassador of Hope. It came clear that I was about to become the king of nowhere. Boom, I'm about to become the king of nowhere. And I didn't want to be the king of nowhere. I backed up, I went to my cell. I said, well, if I can't be a psychopath, what's the point of being in prison? It didn't make sense. Prison always made sense to me. That's why I was 100% all in, because I could rationalize it in my brain that this makes sense. I got this goal of being the number one guy. That goal is now gone. I'm Michael Mogul, founder and CEO of Crisp, the nation's number one law firm growth company. I've built my business through practice, not theory. Crisp started with just $500 to my name and has grown to over eight figures in revenue over the last few years, earning a spot on the Inc. 500 list of the fastest growing private companies in America. Our approach has been to take everything we've learned about generating massive growth within our own organization and help the country's most ambitious and committed law firm owners do the same for theirs. In each episode of this podcast, I sit down with innovative market leaders from the legal industry and beyond to learn from those who thrive in the face of adversity, challenge the status quo, and define what it means to be a true game changer. I sat down with Andre Norman to discuss the impact of our environment on our outcomes, what it means to live a purpose-driven life, and why our past does not have to dictate our future. There are some good in everybody. There's some bad in everybody. I sat with Michael Brown Sr. His son died. And when I met him, no matter what is said, whatever side you stand on, that father is without a son. That's his truth. Father without a son. That's the truth, and that hurts. I said to him, you can stay the angry black dad, and you can be that, and you can be the best at that. Or you can be a catalyst for change. And we sat with Michael Sr. He taught him how to be a forgiveness coach. Who better than to teach forgiveness than Michael Sr.? And he embraced it. It took some time. He turned from being just the person who spoke against police violence, which he still does, but now he teaches forgiveness. That's moving forward. That's coming up on the Game Changing Attorney Podcast. Andre Norman is a Harvard University fellow, motivational speaker, and the founder of Academy of Hope, a violence reduction program that has transformed the cultures of some of the most dangerous prisons in America. He's also the best-selling author of Ambassador of Hope, turning poverty in prison into a purpose-driven life. I began our conversation by asking Andre what motivated him to write about his experience in prison. I wrote the book while I was in prison. My original reason for writing the book, there was another gentleman who wrote a book who was in jail, and it was about his experience. And I hated the portrayal. I hated the imagery. But if you read this book, you would think all prisoners were like this. I'm like, no, hell no. This is so far removed from who I am that I'm offended that anybody will ever consider me to be like this man. So I literally went upstairs, got some yellow legal pads and started writing my book. I said, I'm gonna let them know what my type of person looks like behind this wall. 
I wrote for the next three or four years. I came home with like a 400-page manuscript. But once I wrote it, I felt better. I wrote it to make me feel better. And I just went on with my life. And I came home, I started doing outreach, speaking, traveling, and the book went on the shelf. And then John Rulin, Cameron Harold, and Joe Polish was like, this story has to be told, Andre. And they took me to Tucker Max and the JT, Scribe. They said, you have to have these people do your book. I sat with Tucker. And Tucker is one of my favorite people because he's real, he's raw, he's direct. He will tell you what is, if you like it or not. Your feelings be damned. This is the truth. And I love that. And he told me the truth. I signed up with Scribe. And I hinted my manuscript. I said, yo, Tuck, here you go. He said, what's that? I said, this is going to be the easiest book y'all have ever done. It's already done for you. Just like clean it up, put a cover on it, and we're ready to go. He says to me, Andre, have you ever written a best-selling book? I said, no. He said, then why would I use this? Why do you want a non-best-selling book writer to write your book? Let me do what I do and then check with me after. And they took the 400 pages that I had given them and none of them made it into the book. I read the book that he wrote and I cried. So often we diminish the abilities and skill sets of somebody else because we do it at a generic level. We diminish something because we think we can do it or variation thereof. And there's a differential between standing on stage or writing somebody's story and making it impactful. So John, Joe, and Cameron got me with Tucker, and um, it was a great experience. It was seamless, and I loved the final result. So early on, when you start the book, you tell an interesting story to characterize who is Andre Norman when you're in prison. Right. And you wake up in your jail cell, you're hungry. I'm hungry, I get hungry often. Yes, but I, I think it's important that you tell the story because of like who you were at that point, what the mindset was, and what it was like to interact with you. Well, first, my brother, my big brother, Dave Spence, because I told him the story. He said, that's the story I want in your book. Dave Spence requested that. So, because I love Dave, and he's a big brother to me, I put it in there, Tucker decided it went first, but it was going in there. So the story was, I woke up, I'm in prison. I'm the third ranking gang member in the state. I control contraband, I control knives, I control gang movement, I control a lot of stuff. So I wake up in my cell and I'm hungry. And as a prison boss, you get benefits. So I said, I'm hungry. I get up, walk out of my cell. I walk downstairs to the desk, get a guy head nod. He opens the gate. I walk into the hallway. I start walking down the hallway, I get to the sergeant's desk, get my head nod. He opens the gate. I walk down the hallway some more, I get to central control, where this is where they control the whole prison. Like, I can't go in central control, but it's from here they control all doors, all everything. I look at the guy, there's a hallway across from him. I give him a head nod, he opens a hallway door. So I go down this long hallway, I get to the end of the hallway is the kitchen. I knock on the kitchen door, the guy slides the, the metal thing back, he looks, he sees it's me, I give him a head nod, they open the kitchen door. Now I'm standing in the prison kitchen. Grills, vats, all the stuff. I turn to the two guys over by the grill. I said, yo, make me a hamburger. Turn to the other guy, yo, go make me a shake. And I'm standing there chilling, like, yo, okay, I'm about to eat. Then this guy comes out of the kitchen, out of the back, suit jacket on. He says, what are you doing in my kitchen? You're not dressed properly. You're not this, you're not that. You're not on my schedule. Who are you? I'm like, he's screaming at me, like, who are you? What are you doing in my kitchen? I'm like, slow down. <laughs> he said, well, who are you? 
at the time, we're going to go back to the 90s, there was a song out called The Regulator by Warren G. And I said, I'm the regulator. He says, well, what do you regulate? I said, if you go home or not. He says, what do you mean? I said, first, all this screaming you're doing is not necessary. We're grown men. We can communicate like grown men. And I regulate if you go home in a box or you walk out of here on your two feet. That's who I am. And he heard me and he's looking at me like to see if I'm joking, but I'm not joking. I'm like, dude, I can kill you right now. Understand where you are and who you're talking to, because evidently somebody didn't inform you of what's really going on in here. You read the manual or the handbook for staff, that shit don't matter in here. I decide if you go home, not you. Now, if you don't pay attention, let me help you out. I came through five locked doors to get into this kitchen. Everybody in here is doing exactly what I said, including your staff, with no problems and no issues. You got the problem, and you're trying to get in my way of eating. I'm not trying to be a tough guy. I'm not trying to be over the top, but this is facts. Right now, they're cooking me a hamburger, and you're telling them not to. If I kill you, you'll be dead. Your wife will miss you. Your kids will miss you. I'll go to solitary confinement, maybe five, six, seven years. And while I'm in solitary, I don't have a wife. I don't have kids. I sit in solitary. I do my solitary time. And then they're going to let me out of solitary. Because I just came out of solitary for trying to kill eight people. I'll get back out in seven years. And I'll be standing back in the same kitchen. And they're going to make me a hamburger then. With no qualms. So my only dilemma, which is the question to you, do I get a hamburger today? Or do I give it in seven years? It's your call. I'm just hungry. And I'm patient. And he's looking at me like, oh, my God. <laughs> Nobody's coming to his rescue. I just threatened to kill him like five times in the air shot on like four guards. Nobody's moving. I'm like, today or seven years, brother, it's your call. And he walked over to the grill. He said to the grill man, make him two. <laughs> and then he ran into his office and slammed the door and called his wife. Like, oh, my God. <laughs> what did I get myself into? What they didn't explain to him was prisoners run the prison. They just worked it. And it was not me trying to be tough, but he was like in my way of what I wanted. And when people get in my way, you got to deal with it. And there's consequences to everything. He was at war with my hunger. And I was going to fight that war. If it meant seven years to victory, then I'll do seven years to get to my victory. And he'd have just been a casualty along my way. So I'm curious then, like you're a competitive person. You said you just like winning. I win. But when it comes to leveling up the, in the ranks in prison. What does it take to get to the level that you were at? What it takes to get to the level of a prison boss is one, you have to have that thought process that you want to be a boss. It doesn't happen by accident. It has, it's intentional. It's kind of like pound for pound best fighter. When Mike Tyson first started boxing, he was just a up and coming young guy. Then the more people he beat up and the more savagely he beat them up, the bigger his name got. Then he got to the point where he was the most feared guy on the planet even before he fought for the championship. So the fights that he fought and the way that he won made him the powerful pound best fighter in the world. It's the same thing in prison. You come in, you're Joe Nobody, and you start having fights. You start getting in battles. You start having situations. And it's not just that you won, but how you won and that who you fought. Are you fighting a bunch of bums? Are you fighting real people? Are you healing real situations or are they make-believe? And I went through riots on airplanes. You've seen Con Air? I've lived it. Solitary confinement, two and a half years in the basement with no sunlight. Fights on the yard, two against 20. 
fights on the yard, two against 30. You're saying hand-to-hand combat, outthinking, outsmarting everybody around you. I'm saying even the contraband and the things that happen, handling the institutional commerce and business. I mean, are you a thought leader? Are you creating new and clever ways to make things move and happen? And those things are like, it's like a checklist. Okay, he did that well, he did, and then you just keep moving up. And the better you think, the more savage you are, and the more cunning you are, the more status you get. And it took nine months for me to get kicked out of the state of Massachusetts. It took me two and a half years to get kicked out of the Federal Bureau of Prisons. I've been kicked out of nine different facilities in nine different states for being violent and incorrigible. It's wins. I keep winning. I'm a force to be reckoned with. And you look at me, my status used to be I was trying, never got it, to get a murder in prison. Because I wanted you to look at me and say, I ain't messing with that dude because he'll kill me. I look at that pen. Yo, Mike, will you die for that pen? Because I will. Will you die for that cup of water? I will. The one who's willing to give the most wins. The most extreme wins. The one with the least amount to lose wins. My stepdad told me I went to prison. He said, you can either do your time in a visiting room, on the phone, writing letters, stuff you have no control over. Or you can focus on what you have control over, and that's inside. I didn't do visits. I wasn't big on the phone. wasn't big on letters. I focused on what I could control. And I went 100% all in. And then you just come up in status and you just keep growing until somebody knocks you off. We all thought Mike Tyson was invincible until Buster Douglas. Prior to that, he was the king of the world. And I rose up to the point of Mike Tyson. I never fought Buster Douglas. I got to that status from the wars and the battles that I've been through. So if we go back before all this, before even back to childhood, uh, I remember reading that you had really three three rules or three principles that kind of governed your behavior. Three basic from, rules. From, from an early age. It's okay to hit anybody. Because if my mother can be hit, anybody can be hit. I watched my mother be beaten as a young child. Two, I better protect myself. When I was a young kid trying to go to school, white kids threw rocks and they called me nigger. Routinely, daily. And nobody came to help me. And three, I can quit anytime. My father walked out on us when I was in the first grade and he quit. And what he taught me was quitting was okay. So anytime things got tough or pushy, I could just quit. And that's what I did. And I walked through life from an eight-year-old with that lens that this is how I work. This is how I move. I can hit somebody, I better protect myself, and I can quit. And I would love to be able to tell you that nobody cared about me, no life was horrible and everything sucked, and that's why I went to prison. I went to prison because my dad taught me how to quit, and I quit on everything positive in my life. I quit on band. I quit on choir. I quit on track. I quit on sports. I quit on acting. I quit on everything. What only left me, negativity. And negativity takes you to the penitentiary or takes you to the graveyard. So I went to jail because I was a quitter. What are some of the things that led to elementary school, middle school, high school? Because it seemed like you were around a circle of people and of individuals that weren't a great influence, but coupled with these principles, it probably led you down a more difficult path. Because you're right, you did have some people that did believe in you, but ultimately their influence wasn't strong enough compared to the other people you had around you. Most of the people in my life at a young age didn't understand my trauma. And trauma wasn't even a word in 1978, 1981. Trauma wasn't a word. In the 70s, domestic violence wasn't a word. It was called handling your household. You were allowed to beat your wife in the 70s. You were allowed to beat your wife in the 60s. It wasn't called domestic violence. That's some new stuff. And so the trauma that I had lived 
Nobody was solving, nobody was curing, nobody was speaking to. It is so much easier to hand me a football, hand me a baseball, than to sit down and talk to me about my pain. And people weren't equipped or trained to help young folks with their pain. White, black, or indifferent, it didn't matter. Pain is tough. Can we give them another leadership program? Can we put them in a, a rock climbing class? Can we get them, give them something to do? Maybe he can work it out. And my stuff wasn't going to be worked out through some external means. I had internal pain. I needed an internal resolution. And I wasn't getting it. So all the things that I did didn't hold because internally I was broken. And nobody took the time to say, let's fix them inside. In kidney garden, all I needed was a hug and a sandwich. And what I got was a baseball, a basketball, and go outside. Boys don't cry. In middle school, I just needed someone to get me some clean socks and a lunch and not make me feel bad about being a free lunch kid. What I got was boys don't cry, get it the best way you can. In high school, I wanted to be a trumpet player. I loved playing the trumpet. I was a musician. What I got is that stupid. Black folks don't do it. We don't roll like that. So the reinforcements weren't there. Oftentimes people say, hey, what about the music, Dre? The music is killing the kids. My son listens to trap music, rap music, and everything else, but to him it's entertainment because his mother's a doctor, his father's an interventionist. So that for him is entertainment. Whereas for myself and kids like me, it was a guide. How do we live? How should we strive? Because we didn't have those role models and those expectations being set for us. My son, before he was born, when I was dating his mom, wasn't even married, she said to me, all of my kids will go to Ivy League schools. Is that a problem for you? And I said, no. And one of the things that attracted me to my wife was her love and strength on education. I needed a great mom for my kid who was going to take him through the spaces where I was weak. And he was planned and has been part of the plan since before we got married. It wasn't like he just popped up and we got to deal with this kid. There was a plan for him. And that plan has carried through and it overrides music. It overrides rap videos. It overrides social media because he understands his purpose from his parents. So minus good guidance, you're going to get a mess. As a teenager, Andre was a talented trumpet player who had the opportunity to pursue a career in music. I asked him to elaborate on his struggle with identity and how he was influenced by those around him. When I was in sixth grade, Miss Ellis gave me a trumpet and I was in a band all through middle school. And when it came time to go to high school, she came back and told me, I can't go to my district high school where all my friends are going and my sister went. She said, you have to go to some place where they play music because I had a gift. And I said, what are you talking about? She said, you're a gifted musician. And she made me sign up for a high school with a music program. And I went and I joined the band. And in the morning, I'd be in the band, hanging out with all the band kids, all the nerds. And I loved it. Then in the afternoon, I hang out with the thug kids. We out ripping and running. Then one day, my thug friend said to me, Dre, what's up with that box? I said, what do you mean? He said, you always carrying that big box. It's ugly, it's stupid. What are you doing? I said, oh, it's my trumpet. They said, you got to get rid of it. I said, why I got to get rid of it, man? And this is my thing. They're like, no, nah, it's either the trumpet or us because we don't believe that's going to do anything for you. That's a waste of time and it's stupid. And as a 14-year-old kid who's been alone almost his whole life, I had to make a choice, my friends or my trumpet. And I made the wrong choice. I went to class. I'm a junior in high school, flunking three years straight. I'm in special needs. I showed up to class late one day. The teacher wouldn't let me in. 
had a buddy with me in the radio. She said, get out of here. So we're walking in the hallways. And in public school, every so often, the superintendent of school comes. And when that person comes to your school, everything's cleaned, everything's in order, everything's put away. I run the security guard. He says, Dre, you got to get out the hallway. And before I could go into it, he said, superintendent's coming. And we know what that means. Ain't no BS today. I said, well, I can't go to the gym because I got this big radio. And it's like the gang that runs our gym would have robbed me. He says, go in the auditorium. He said, there's a thing in there. I ain't supposed to let you in there, but you're cool. Just sit in the back and just chill and don't make me look bad. So me and my buddy, we sit in the back of the auditorium. And this guy down front with a bow tie on telling the kids they can go to Europe. They can go to Italy. They can go to France. They can go to all these different countries about this exchange student thing. First, I'm good. But then Andre kicked in. <laughs> I was like, dude, that's BS, man. I don't know where you got them white kids from, the little Chinese kids. They probably don't go to school here. You bust them in to try to tell them they can go someplace that they ain't going. And I'm just being rude from the back. And I'm expecting to be rude back to me because that's what I'm accustomed to. He says, don't talk to me from back there. Come talk to me to my face. My buddy started laughing like, oh, we called you out. I walked down to the front in the auditorium. I'm like, dude, why are you selling these dreams, man? Ain't nobody going nowhere. This is where we live. This is what it is, man. This is the hood. We're struggling. We're in the ghetto. Stop with all this fantasy stuff. He said, well, do this. Fill out the application. Turn it in. Make them tell you no. Don't ever say no for them because you're guaranteeing yourself a no. I'm like, man, whatever. He stuck the paperwork in my radio. I sit down. I go back to class. Fast forward. It was February. Three months later, I'm sitting in my room at home and I'm like, the date, the date, something's about this date. So I go over to the desk, I open my drawer up, I grab the app out, it's the date is due. I fill it out real quick, I grab my homie Puma D, he was a high school dropout, he had a stolen car. We jump in a stolen car, <laughs> we go over to the drop-off site, and we walk into the building, we got leather jackets on with the fur, the big radio. We walk in, we walk up to the door, nice white lady with the pearls on, say, hi, hi, may I help you? I was like, right, I'm ready to run, we don't mess with white people in Boston. Back in the 80s, I said, no, no. So you turn around, I'm about to, oh, she stopped us. Like, hey, no, no, what are you here for? I said, I'm here for the exchange student problem. She said, what? I said, I'm here for the exchange student program. She said, oh, give me application. I handed the application and we stood there. I'm waiting for to tell me to get out of here. And she said, this is cool. She said, where's your essay? So what do you mean? She said, you have to have an essay to go with your app. I said, oh, I ain't got no essay. I'm gone. I'm looking for an out. I'm looking for a reason to quit. I tried to turn and run. She said, no, stop. She said, come here. She got a piece of paper. She got me a desk and she sat me and she said, you write your essay right now. So I wrote my essay and I gave it to her. Then me and my boy Puma walks into this big hall and it was all these families. Mom, dad, grandmom, everybody's dressed up in the Sunday clothes. And they got their little brother and sister. I was insulted because I had never seen this before. Like whole families together doing stuff. And the mother's walking over saying to the people, hey, this is Johnny. He's going to be applying in three years. Um, his brother, I mean, I'm looking like, what is this? I got a high school dropout with me. And the way it was set up is Ronald Reagan wanted poor black kids to go on this exchange student thing. And they, they came up to plan that if we want black kids to go, we can't do grades because the Asians and the whites will beat them out across the board and there'll be no black kids if we just do grades. So they said, you have to interview them Potential only. No grades can be looked at. That was the fighting chance that we were given. <laughs> so we're in the room, and there's 34 companies that do this exchange student thing that the government's going to fund. And they told them there's going to be like 100 kids here. You rate them in a draft order. Like the, if you could have any kid, give us your top 20. 
And based on who wanted who is how they give out the scholarships. I went around and interviewed with all 34 companies. And then we left. I got a notice probably like three weeks later. I was number one on every list. They said, that's who we want. And the only company I remember is a company called Facets. And I remember them because they only went to the south of France and you had to, prerequisite had to speak French because you're going to be with a host family. And I didn't speak French. They called me and said, Andre, we have a prerequisite that you have to speak French. We're trying to get around it because we want you to. And it was just like crazy. Then I went with this one company and they set up a trip for me. London, Paris, Belgium, host family, Amsterdam, back to London. I picked it because I got to see the most places. I was like, why go to one place and I go to five? <laughs> that was my thinking. And then we went to the ceremony. They gave me my award. And my dad drove me to the airport. And he dropped me off. I mean, they got me. I didn't have a passport. They got me a passport. And I actually had to go out and rob a bunch of people to get the money to buy the clothes that I needed to go on this trip because I didn't have a suitcase. They didn't have summer clothes, didn't have travel stuff. I didn't know what to buy. I'm a kid in the hood. We just wear what we wear. So I went out and robbed a bunch of people and got arrested, trying to rob a bunch of people to get the money to support the trip. And the judge gave me a continuance because my lawyer said, hey, the kid just want to exchange for the scholarship. Can you continue this for four months so he can go on a trip? The judge could have said no, but she said yes. So I got to go to Europe and I spent the summer in Europe Met my best friend, Morgan Zalkin, girl out of Miami. We just became best friends. And it was just like, we had the same life from my perspective. We had the same life except for her parents could pay for her to go to a private school. We were the same person. I mean, we were like this. And my deduction is her parents could write a check for her to go to the best private school in Miami. And the school de facto raised her or helped a lot where her parents couldn't fill in. And we just became best friends. I did the summer. And the crazy thing was, they came up to me and was like, hey, Dre, we're having a, a recital at the end of the summer. Your parents coming. I'm like, what are you talking about? We're in London. They're like, no, no, no. Parents are coming. Are your parents coming? I'm like, stop playing. And sure enough, at the end of the summer, all these parents flew in for this stupid 35-minute recital. I'm like, what is this? Y'all flew from San Francisco, from Boston, from New York, from Atlanta for your kids' 30-minute recital in London? Are you serious? Blew me away. Didn't make sense. But I made a lot of great friends that summer. Then I went back home. I was still on that mindset of criminality. And I went right back to the street. Actually, during the summer, I did so well or made such connection that all the kids went home and told their parents, I want to go on Andre's trips next year. So all the parents called the company and said, who is Andre? And what trip is he going on next year? Because my kid insisted on going with him. So they called me and said, Andre, we're going to pay for you to go back next summer on another exchange student trip. And if that goes well, we'll make you a junior counselor and we just go from there. Because they were going to put me on the most expensive trip, have all those kids go, and they had made their money and it was worth paying for me to go. But before it was time to go, I didn't understand what that meant. Nobody explained to me the opportunity before me. And I just blew it off and went to hung out in New York in the street. So subsequently, I got rearrested and sent to prison. But I had an opportunity at 17 to be an international camp counselor. But there was no guidance, no mentors to say, hey, Andre, this is the opportunity. This is how you access it. This is how you leverage it. This is how you play your position. And this is what it can do for you. No difference than my trumpet. Nobody ever explained to me 
what the trumpet could do for me. I was just doing stuff with no understanding. Man, there's a part where you say that out of control has a fan base. I agree with you because it seems like now even a society, people love to see just someone just self-destruct or their demise or for whatever reason. But what did you mean by that? Negative sales. If it bleeds, it leads in the news. I turn on the six o'clock news in any major city, it's all robberies and shootings that they show for the first 20 minutes. And that's what captivates people. It's a crime report. That's what leads. And everybody watches it. It has a fan base. Because I think it was, uh, you mentioned this guy, Dominic, Dom. who you looked up to. Dominic's right? my guy. So why did you look up to this guy? As a young man without a father, you look for father figures. And when I was a young kid, 12 years old, Dominic's the biggest guy in our neighborhood. He's like the biggest name. He's that dude. He represented our neighborhood, so therefore he represented us in the street world. And when I went to prison, I got a chance to hang out with Dominic. And he was that guy I looked up to, so I just said, hey. And subconsciously made him a father figure. And we all look for father figures. Sometimes you get lucky enough to get a football or basketball coach, or you get a track coach, or you get a teacher or something. I had it in my music career with Miss Ellis, and I lost it. And finding that coach can supplement not having a dad. But those of us who make the mistake of picking criminals as our <laughs> de facto dads, we follow that path. I was 13 when Dominic got arrested and sent to jail for murder. And we used to sit around at 13 years old, around the mailbox, and wonder what Dominic was doing. We started talking about maximum security penitentiary at 13. I wonder what Dominic's doing. And we talked about it until we got there. I manifested it in my life because I started talking about the penitentiary, that specific place, at 13. And at 18, I was there next to Dominic. And I thought I won. <laughs> now, there were the stints in, in the county jail, but when you got to prison, it was, it was a very different experience. Maximum security prison is a whole nother world. It's scary. There's no other way to describe it but scared. First time in, you should be scared to death. People get raped. People get beaten, people get stabbed, people get murdered, people get tortured daily across this country. So when I got there, I was scared. They called me down to the unit team and a nice caseworker sat me down and said, hey, you can go get your GED, you're gonna have to drive a forklift, you can do all this other stuff and you can make your time work for you. So at one o'clock, I'm lining up to go to school. And Dominic and the guys pulled up and like, where you going? We going to the yard. I'm going to school. I'm about to get my GED, my forklift degree. And they're like, oh, you got the white lady story. What are you talking about? He said, you see them guys over there? They remember this white guy. When they find out that you're a loner, they're going to run up on you. They're going to beat you, rob you, and who knows what else. Do you think the caseworker's going to come help? You see them guys over there? They're going to come beat the shit out of you. You know why? Because you're a loner. You see the CO? He's going to have no respect for you. You know why? Because you're a loner. So you got a choice. You can go with the caseworker who's not gonna help you, or you can come roll with us and we're gonna hold you down and make sure you're safe. I took the little handbook, flipped it in the trash, grabbed me a knife and I went out to the yard. I didn't look back. In that moment, it's interesting because knowing now what, what you know, if, if you could go back to that point, was that true? Those are the only two options? Yeah. <laughs> Going back right now, unless I had some Mike Tyson skills, it wouldn't even make a difference because you outnumbered. So going back right now, if you put me back in that same unit at the same time, even with all the skills I have now, I'd have signed up. Because you can't beat the mob, whether it's white, black, or Spanish. One man can't beat 20. I don't care how good you fight. So looking back at that particular situation, day one in the penitentiary, 
I'm signed up for the gang again. 100%, no blank. Because that's how you're going to survive. You can't go to school if your jaw's wide shut. I'm saying you can't go to school, I'm saying, if your head's split open. You're not going to forklift class if you got holes punched in your chest. It's not going to work. So you have to be safe before anything can actually transpire. And safety comes from being involved in that gang. Yeah. And now through the years when you're in, in prison, just kind of, so you have, you have goals, right? I mean, out of 20,000 people, you, you've got up to what, two, number three? I got to number three. Number three. Why number three? I mean, I know I asked earlier, but just, you know, why not in the top 10%, top 20%? Like, why, why become the regulator? I'm an entrepreneur, and I believe in winning. I've never signed up for anything so I want to be number two. That's not an American culture where you sign up and want to be third place. <laughs> the goal is to win. And in that space, wanting to be the ultimate winner, the toughest, most feared guy on the planet is a gang leader who runs the entire prison system, the ultimate shot caller. That's the number one guy. In politics, it's the president. It's not the governor. The number one politician is the president. The number one person in the penitentiary is a shot caller. The shot caller, not a shot caller. And I was like, I want to be the shot caller. And that was the goal. I want to be the top of the list. And I went on that quest, and I made it from number 20,000 to number three. Then I had an opportunity to become number one. Because, again, it's about how much work you put in, how much violence and carnage you can inflict. When I got a chance to be number one, I just had to hurt a couple more people, and I was there. And before I could do it, I had an argument with God. And God said, don't do this life choice. And me and God argued, but he won the argument. The way I explain it to people, it's like when Dorothy in The Wizard of Oz got to the end of the road and she wanted to get to Tin Hard and all the rest of the stupid stuff, she pulls the curtain back and the wizards are fake. When I got to the end of the road and there was my chance to be the wizard, I pulled the curtain back and then I saw for what it was. It was all fake. It was like make-believe. This champion of champions is not champion of nothing. It's all made up. And I saw for what it was, and God helped me realize that um, I picked a bad path, and he was giving me another one. And this is a crazy thing about the Wizard of Oz. Nobody in Oz cared that the place was fake. Think about it. Nobody in Oz cared that the whole place was fake. They just were content to live in their little section of Oz and just keep going. So in this moment, like this, this epiphany, like was this just like one day, one night, or something? One afternoon. Like, that's it? Clear. It came clear that I was about to become the king of nowhere. Boom. I'm about to become the king of nowhere. And I didn't want to be the king of nowhere. So I, I backed up. I went to my cell. I said, well, if I can't be a psychopath, what's the point of being in prison? It didn't make sense. Prison always made sense to me. That's why I was 100% all in, because I could rationalize it in my brain that this makes sense. I got this goal of being the number one guy. I'm, that goal is now gone. It's removed. I don't want to be the number one guy because I see it for what it was. I said, well, first time, six and a half years. I said, I don't want to be here. I don't want to be here. It doesn't make sense to me anymore. So I said, well, I want to be free. Never said that before, never even thought it. Then I looked around at the white guys, the black guys, the Spanish guys. I looked at the guys who worked in the kitchen, the guys who went to church, the guys who went to the mosque, the guys who worked in the kitchen, the guys who worked out on the yard, the basketball players, the chess players, the philosophers. They all got free and they all came back. Free doesn't work. So I said, I don't want to be free because it doesn't work. That's when I said, well, what do I need to do to not come back here? I said, if I'm successful, I won't come here. I said, successful people come from college. I'll go to college. I'll be successful. I won't come back. I had to pick a school. So I picked a school called Harvard University. And I picked Harvard not because it's the biggest school on the planet. 
It's 20 minutes from my house. I used to ride my skateboard there. So I came out my cell the next day. I told the fellas, yo, get together. Check this out. They said, what's up? I said, I figured it out. I said, I'm going home. I'm going to Harvard. I'm going to be successful. And they looked at me. I said, no, no, no. I'm going home. I'm going to go to Harvard. I'm going to be successful. Now, they wanted to laugh at me, but I had a habit of stabbing people. <laughs> so nobody laughed. Then one of my homies pulled me to the side and said, yo, Dre, what's up with this Harvard stuff? And he told me, you can't go to Harvard. I said, why? He said, you're black. I said, I know that. He said, you're a criminal. I said, I know that. He said, you're a gang member. I said, I know that. He said, you're in the hole for trying to kill eight people. I said, I know that. He said, you was talking about killing seven people yesterday. I said, yeah, I know that. He said, you can't read that good. He just kept telling me all the reasons I couldn't go to Harvard. And what I was hearing were my friends from the ninth grade stealing my trumpet. I was like, dude, fall back. Call my mom, call my dad, call my grandmother. And I realized I was on my own. So I stood in the mirror. I said, what's inside of me that's stopping this dream from happening? I'm done blaming other people. Because up until then, I blamed everything or everybody for what happened in my life or didn't happen. I said, what's inside of Andre Norman that's stopping this from happening? And I sent it up. I made a list. I started working on my list. I got my GED first. Then I started going to anger management classes because I had a slight anger management problem. Then I went to the law library and taught myself the law. I became a jailhouse lawyer. I reversed my case on appeal. And I started going to self-help groups. I started going to programs. I started writing my own book. I started doing everything I could to better Andre to put myself in a position to be successful. Then I went to the parole board, and the first time I went, they told me no. I walked in, they heard my story, heard my pitch, they said no. And instead of being the angry black man, which is who I used to be, I asked them, I said, why did you say no? They said, you know something, usually we, we don't tell people, and they told me why they said no. I had an understanding. I went back and I worked on their list. When I came back the next time, I won my parole. Then November 15th, 1999, I walked out of prison with a GED and a goal. Prison Parole Office Youth Center. I started talking to little black kids who looked just like me not long ago, telling them, you're going to jail not because you're black. You're going to jail not because you smoke weed or carry a gun. Somebody let you down, they haven't been there for you, and it hurts. And you act out. At eight and nine, it was cute. At 14 and 15, it's criminal. Let me show you how to heal yourself internally and deal with your trauma, and you can live a great life. Started with black kids, then started with black girls, then with Spanish kids, then they asked me to go to the white school. I'm like, white kids ain't got no problem. This is their country, they own everything. I went to a white school. They drink at the white school. They do drugs at the white school. They have bullies at the white school. They had fat kids at the white school, that was crazy. All the shows I grew up watching, white kids had it fixed by the end of the half hour. So to walk into a privileged suburban school and these kids had problems, it was too much for me. I was like, wow, they got jacked up lives just in a bigger house. And I realized being 15 was tough no matter where you came from or what you look like. So my philosophy became, if you call me, I'll show up. No more screening or check the box. You call me, I show up. And for 22 years, I've been showing up. I want to go back briefly just to prison because there's something you mentioned that whenever anybody would get released. It didn't matter if it was you know, someone that the rest of the prisoners didn't like. It didn't matter if it was your worst enemy. People were genuinely, I think, happy when someone would walk free. Why is that? Every single day, we fight the war against each other as prisoners. Whites against blacks, blacks against Spanish, Spanish against white, and we all fight. And there's a saying, we fight each other unless it's us against them. But every single morning at nine o'clock, They'd come on a loudspeaker and they'd announce names. 
John Smith, Harry Silver, and they go down the list. They tell you, report to the front gate. Those are the guys who are going home. And no matter how much I hated you, how much I couldn't stand you, how much I wanted to kill you personally, the goal of prison is to get out. That's the goal. Even though we don't act like it, we understand the baseline goal of prison is to get out. And when we see somebody who made it, it's a silent prayer. For that 30 seconds to 60 seconds, when they're announcing those names, it could be your worst enemy, it could be your best friend. You want them to succeed. And for that 60 seconds, the entire prison is on one page. God let them make it. And once they walk through the gate, we're back to our savagery again. <laughs> well, and, and then the road to parole wasn't easy. I mean, you were, you were motivated, you were doing all the right things, but then apparently they were sticking you in, in cells with your enemies and, and things like that. I made parole. For many years, I was a menace. I was one of the worst prisoners in the state of Massachusetts as far as getting in trouble, assaults, stabbings, shipouts, you name it, riots. I was that guy. So there's a lot of people who have a perception of me. And it's an honest perception. I created it. And then when I turned my life around, they thought I was gaming the system. Dre ain't changed. He's just scamming. It's some kind of scam. So when I made parole, people were shocked. Like, what happened? He scammed the parole board, is what they told me. <laughs> you scammed the parole board. They don't know who you are. They don't get it. So the only way they can lose my parole is if I get in a fight or something. So I'm in the unit. What I had done was doubled up all my programs. Instead of going to one program a day, I'm going to three. Instead of going to one program a weekend, I'm going to three. Instead of doing reading one book, I'm reading two. Because I wanted to get this right. And my friends came to me and said, yo, Dre, why are you doing all this extra stuff? I said, this is my last chance to get it right. I did these programs to stay out, not to get out. But there were some guards and some administrators who didn't like me based on how I treated them earlier. They didn't pick my name out of a hat. I had issues with some people direct. So they're like, okay, let's help him mess up. <laughs> so they took me out of the cell I was in, put me in a cell with a guy they thought I didn't like. That was technically an enemy. They didn't know we had worked it out prior. So we get in the cell together and we're in there together. And they're hoping that we get in a fight. When that doesn't happen, they move me to another unit that I used to be in before and I got in trouble. They gave me every chance to mess up. They could have planted drugs on me. They could have threw a knife in my cell. They didn't play fair, but they didn't cheat. They gave me the opportunity to mess up. Now, had they done some underhanded stuff, it'd be a different story. They did not do anything underhanded other than give me a chance to mess up. And I refused to accept that chance. I stayed true to what I was taught. I stayed true to who I was. The difference between Andre in 99 and Andre in 89 is I had mentors. They messed up, and there was an Orthodox Jewish rabbi who became one of my mentors. There was the two nuns in the church who became my mentors. And I started having OGs in the prison who were on positive stuff became mentors. And I had people giving me guidance, which is what I didn't have before. So with guidance, anything is possible. They call it coaching in the free world. But um, I had guidance. And I listened to my coaches, I listened to my guides, and I didn't feed in to the negativity that was offered to me. And it almost seems like you were, you were a man on a mission of wanting to either pay it forward or with all the speaking you're doing and working with youth and, and so on. Why approach it that way? Like what in you, rather than just focusing on Andre and saying, let me just worry about myself, why, why want to influence others? When I wanted to change my life, Latan Schaefer, who was a Jewish chaplain at the prison, when nobody else would come within 100 feet of me, this man sat with me, and he coached me, and he educated me. He taught me respect. He taught me accountability. 
He taught me how to be human. Of all the people I met prior to Natan, nobody had taught me how to be human. They taught me how to crush, kill, destroy, not cry, handle the pain. They taught me it's not the one who inflicts the most pain, but who can endure the most pain, who wins. All this madness they taught me. He taught me to be loving. He taught me to be caring. He taught me that I was a vessel of good. And then the people who fed into me, even though I didn't deserve it, there was a CEO named Rob Henderson. He let me into the anger management block. When people didn't want to come near me because of my status, he gave me a shot. He said, man, moving the anger management block, I think it'd be good for you. And he let me in. He took some heat for it, but I went in there and I crushed it. I was in the block for probably like three months. And the first time in the history of this program, they went to the warden and said, can we hire this man? He's that good. They said, you can't hire prisoners. <laughs> but Rob Henderson gave me a shot. Natan gave me a shot. Sister Ruth and Sister Kathleen gave me a shot. There's a guy named Pat Dempsey, a Catholic volunteer, used to come in every week and sit with me. And he gave me a shot. There were so many people who gave me a chance when I was technically undeserving. And so when I got free, when I got loose and I got on my path to success, I'm going to tell you the one thing that Tom taught me. Of all the things, success is not a success without a successor. So if you're not helping somebody else become successful, you're not successful, you're just lucky. And I took that to heart. So my goal is to help people be successful. What their success that they want is not relevant to me. Just get there. Stay alive and get there. I specialize in keeping people alive. And I see myself as that person that other people looked over. I will work myself above and beyond because I remember what it's like to be the guy that nobody wanted to work with, the guy that nobody believed in. Oh, he's going to jail, or he's going to solitary, or he'll never make it. He's going to die. I'm the guy that everybody wrote off. So I see that next person as the write-off. And if I walk away, am I writing them off too? And I can't do that. When I came home from prison, I worked with a guy. He got me this big house, got me a car, boat, plane, train. I made him $25 million in four years, but I was doing outreach. And I would get up at 6 o'clock in the morning, I'd go to work. i get home at 3 o'clock, go into my house. House is empty. Hated being alone. So at 3.30, I'm back out the door working. I show up at 11.30, walk in the house. It's empty. So I go back to work again. <laughs> I come in the house at 3.30 and I pass out. I did that every day, seven days a week. People thought I worked every day like that because I was like so impassioned. I hated being home alone. I've been alone my whole life. And the feeling of loneliness and being neglected is one of the worst feelings in the world to me. Everybody feels their thing is the worst. Well, being neglected to me was my thing as a child. And being alone was what I felt as a child. So when I go into a house and I'm by myself, it hurts. And I go back out in the street and work. That's what drove me for that first, I worked 20 hours a day for seven straight years, didn't blink, because I hated going home alone. That's what drives me. And knowing that next kid is a kid that needs you. That next kid's me. That next kid's me. And it seems like with, when a lot of people try to impact some sort of social change or like we've got to fix this school or we've got to fix this community or whatever it is, they'll, they'll do a lot of studies, they'll invest a lot of money, and it, and it almost feels like they're approaching it as an outsider where they don't really understand what these kids are struggling with. I remember you talking about like Roosevelt High School um, when you came in and I think you turned that place around in 10 months. What were they getting wrong before you were there and like what did you do differently? Roosevelt High School in St. Louis 
St. Louis, Missouri was deemed the most violent city in America. Roosevelt was in the most violent section of the city. And these are the kids from the most poor and violent neighborhoods all in one building. And there was a family, Dave Spence and Susie Spence, who had committed to helping this school. They had been down there for four or five years every day, giving their heart and soul to the school. They cared, they had the resources, but making that internal connection at a level where the gang members were at, they couldn't make that connection. So when Susie saw me, she demanded, she said, you're coming with me and you're gonna help me save this school. And that's why I didn't go because the school had a problem. I went because she had committed her life to it and her commitment inspired my commitment. And she didn't send me, she went with me. And I actually moved in the house with the Spence family and I lived with them. They didn't put me in a hotel. They put me in their house and said, we're gonna do this together. And we became family. That's why I said they're my brother and sister. But when I went into the school, I can see things that they can't. I walked around that school the same way I walked around the prison. I looked for every glitch that allowed me to smuggle contraband, every glitch that allowed me to make a knife, every glitch that allowed me to hide something that wouldn't, shouldn't be hid. I walked around that school, I looked for every glitch that didn't allow a kid to learn. Every glitch that stopped a kid from progressing. And I wrote those glitches down. Then I took the list back to Susie and we went over the list and we started patching those glitches up. One thing they had in the hallways was security guards because there's a lot of violent kids here. So we got rid of some of the security guards and we got substitute teachers in the hallway. So instead of being confronted by a police officer who doesn't do academics, who doesn't do learning, they do law enforcement, which is their job. Now you're being confronted by a substitute math teacher, a substitute history teacher who has a whole different perspective and engagement process, whole different dialogue, whole different connotation. And that fostered a different relationship. Some of the kids going home from school had to go through gang territories and they were getting robbed and beat. I went out and talked to the gang leader. I went, where are they going? I walked the path. I said, okay, this gang runs this block. I went up to the leader and said, yo, Mike, check this out. I got these kids from the school that need to get home. Can you let them come through? He said, you're the first person that ever came and talked to me. They put a police car out here for a day or two, run us off the block. They put another police car out here, run us off the block. Nobody's ever came and talked to me. They don't see him as human. I saw him as a human. I understood him. I said, bro, this is what I'm asking. From four to six, my kids get a pass. After six, hands off. I'm saying, it's all yours. He said, cool. We shook hands and that was it. Kids had a pathway home. From four to six, we told the kids, make your way through. Don't be lollygagging, hanging out. This is gang territory. You know the strip. And communication, whether it's with a gang leader or a principal or a school superintendent, whoever it is, is just having honest communication. There was one time they were supposed to be building a hospital inside of the school. And the agency that was building the hospital was taking forever. So I come to a meeting, it's the school superintendent and all these people around the room and an and advocate from the people who are building the hospital. And we're in the room and I asked a question. I said, who's paying for the build out? Because I assumed the company was. The school said, oh, we're paying for the build out. I said, who's paying for the staffing? School said, we're paying for the staffing. I said, time out. Took the advocate from the, from the big company, from billion dollar company, took him in the hallway and said, pat him on the back, said, have a nice day, we don't need you no more. Don't call us, we'll call you. I walked back in the room and said, yo, we need a new advocate. We need a new medical supplier, healthcare supplier, because they're not doing it. He was like, you just fired them? That's a $2 billion hospital, so I don't care. They're not delivering services. And I went and found a mom and pop hospital, I mean clinic, thing that was local neighborhood-wise, they was ready to do it. 
I said, I brought them to the next meeting and said, this is our new healthcare provider. And the first response I got was, well, they're 50 million, the other company's 2 billion. I'm like, well, that 2 billion's not showing up. They're going to show up. And I fired a $2 billion company on behalf of the kids. I didn't care about politics. Didn't care about who knew who. What's best for the kids? And then the company didn't want to be embarrassed. <laughs> they showed up <laughs> and apologized and agreed to pay for 10 times the stuff they weren't going to pay for. And they built that hospital in record time because they thought they couldn't be kicked out. I don't advocate for adults. I don't advocate for agencies. I advocate for the people who are struggling. If that means firing a $2 billion company, then you're fired. Communicating honestly requires the courage to engage in difficult and often uncomfortable conversations. In what can feel like an increasingly divisive time in our society, Andre advocates for conversation as a tool for healing. We've been in this country collectively 400 years, whites and blacks. Other folks have shown up or might have been here prior, but we've been here collectively as a two dominant set of people. And we've had a bad one <laughs> for the majority of that time. And through the deaths of these folks, Michael Brown Jr., Trayvon Martin, Tremere Rice, I'm saying Sandra Bland, I'm saying George Floyd, it has created a dialogue of healing. We can use it as an opportunity to heal and move forward. We can use it as an opportunity to say, CC, you're wrong. Yeah, they're wrong, but pointing out the wrongness isn't gonna fix anything. If we want resolution and we want better, then we have to have a conversation. Simply telling somebody they're wrong won't make the situation better. Okay, you've identified what we already know. We know that a lot of these people are wrong. We know that the system isn't working. Simply saying that the system isn't working doesn't make the system work better. There are some people who wanna scream and shout. I want solutions and resolutions. And that comes through conversation and dialogue. And when George Floyd died, every white person I know called me. And they wanted to know, oh my God, I didn't know it was this bad. What can we do to make it better? And I had those conversations. And I said, we need to have these conversations. And I tell my black friends, if your phone rings and there's a white person on the other end wanting resolution and understanding, give it to them. Don't say, I told you so. That's not what this is. This isn't shame or blame or make them feel bad. This is a chance legitimately to finally get past and heal from 400 years of divisiveness, of separation. And if you don't wanna have the conversation, send them to me. Because we've been waiting for 400 years to have this conversation, and now it's here. So I believe clear, honest dialogue will bring about a clear, honest result. There'll be some hurt feelings, but we can get through that. If all I'm gonna do is yell at you and tell you you're wrong, where's there space in there for you to actually get better? All the times I got yelled at by my dad didn't make me better. The times he sat on and talked to me, I got better. So I want there to be resolutions and peace in this country that impacts the entire world. But so many people are trying to stay in that space of being angry because it serves whatever purpose they want. I'm not saying don't be angry. I'm not saying that we've been treated fairly. I'm not saying that everything's level. But we'll never get to level. We'll never get to next if we don't handle it with some kind of decorum and straightforward dialogue. My objective is not to shame or belittle or berate white people. I got too many white friends, I got too many white family members, and my number one mentor on this planet is a white man. 
and oh, Dre sold out. No, when I was locked in a basement prison, none of y'all came to help me. Did none of y'all sit with me. And I won't turn my back on because there are some good in everybody, there's some bad in everybody. I sat with Michael Brown Sr. His son died. And when I met him, no matter what is said, whatever side you stand on, that father is without a son. That's his truth. Father without a son. That's the truth, and that hurts. I said to him, you can stay the angry black dad, and you can be that, and you can be the best at that. Or you can be a catalyst for change. And we sat with Michael Sr. We taught him how to be a forgiveness coach. Who better than to teach forgiveness than Michael Sr.? And he embraced it. It took some time. He turned from being just the person who spoke against police violence, which he still does, but he, now he teaches forgiveness. That's moving forward. I want progression. My grandparents and great-grandparents and all the elders didn't die for me just to be stomping my feet. My mother told me, boy, if you got a solution, shut up. Because they're going to call you to the front of the room one day, and they're going to know your solution. And when you don't have one, they're going to tell you, shut up and go sit down. So I want solutions. I don't have time to be emotional. Some people shall and some people will. I'm geared for solutions. And check me on this if I have the wrong read, but I felt that if you can get enough people in a room together from different backgrounds, white, black, all across the board, that it seems like we want the same things. Like right. You want hope, you want opportunity, you want education. They want to be able to, to grow, they want to have a family, they, you know, all these different things that we can all agree upon right. that everybody wants. That it, it almost seems like a lot of this divisiveness that plays out is played out in the media, but when you get people together in a room together, it seems like the that aggression doesn't really exist in the same way. There are some people who make a living off our misery. And a resolution is not in their best interest. Conflict is. And what is their objective? What is their end goal? Some people need the fire to keep going so they can keep selling, I'm saying, fire hoses. You <laughs> say, war is a big business. One of the biggest businesses in any country is wartime. Because you have to make all this wonderful stuff. You have a buyer, buyer, buyer. You can't sell enough. Wartime is one of the greatest times to be an entrepreneur because people are going to buy your stuff. If you can manufacture what they want, they'll buy it. So the war between races, people are selling the stuff to keep it going. If you make tanks, do you want the war to stop? Never. If you're the hospital healing the sick, do you want the war to stop? From a business standpoint, it makes money. And money and capitalism is real. And if a couple more people got to die, then so be it. I'm making money. So what happens is when we sit in the room, this is a differential. The people who are losing their loved ones are living in the inner cities, most of them. You need them at the table. Stop with the advocates. Don't bring the advocates of the families. Bring the families. Bring Michael Sr. Bring Trayvon's mother. Bring George Floyd's mother. Don't bring these advocates. Bring the people themselves. Let them tell you how they feel. Let them tell you what they want for solution. All these third-party people are giving you third-party answers that are mixed in with their agenda. I can tell you because I sat with families what they want. And I don't even want to be to speak for them. When I take Michael out, hand him the mic, I get out the way. You tell him what you feel. I don't need to articulate for that man. So many spokespeople are popping up that you listen to the spokesperson, you listen to the family. And it's, it's sad, and it's unfair, and it's not healing people. It's not healing. 
I'm saying? So everybody wants to be an activist. No. Let the families who lost loved ones be the spokespeople. Well, they don't know how to talk right. Well, teach them. They don't understand media. Well, teach them. They don't understand policy. Well, teach them. Stop speaking in their stead. Let them speak for themselves. And then you get resolution. You want to fix the gang problem? Talk to gang members. Police can't stop gangs. They can only incarcerate them. You want to change gang members' lives? Talk to gang members. You want to talk to alcoholics to stop drinking? You got to talk to alcoholics. You can't talk to their cousin. The sponsor talks to the addict, doesn't talk to somebody who represents the addict. And that's what we're doing. We got people representing the people who you're speaking to and speaking for. And this stuff works. I mean, I, I want to talk about, so you're, what you start with, the Academy of Hope. Academy of Hope. You guys, now, I know what it was at the time of the book, and I know what it is at the time of the website. Does the track record still hold up? Track record holds up. Okay. Track record holds up. Three and a half years ago, there was a riot in South Carolina, and seven men died and 30 men were wounded. It was the worst riot since New Mexico in the early 80s. We haven't had that loss of life in one situation since the early 80s. CNN and the World News shows up. How do you have seven people die in a prison riot? How do you have 30 people be wounded in a prison riot? And what their response was, was they locked the entire prison system down. They didn't want retaliation, they don't want anybody else to die. So how do you stop people from killing each other? You lock them in their cells and you don't let them out. That's the only way to guarantee nobody dies. Don't let them out their cells. And they went into that mode. Lock them in their cells and won't nobody die. Well, five months went by. They're like, well, what do we do now? I don't know. We keep them locked in. Because as long as they're locked in, nobody's dying. And that was a, that was a plan. Well, I believe, I don't want to say, they just kept them locked in. Then the director of the prison system, through his people, met me. And he sat down with me. He said, hey. They said, will you come to South Carolina? So at first, I was like, I'm busy. <laughs> then the lady who ran programs said, where's your commitment to the people? I was like this big time YPO speaker flying around the world, super busy. He said, where's your commitment to the people? Canceled my speeches, flew to South Carolina. Took two brothers with me, Dominic and a guy from New York. I've tried to get Dominic to go to prison a hundred times over. He always refused. He says, I did 29 years, Dre. I'm done. I got my trucking company. I got my wife. I got my house. I ain't going nowhere near prison. I said, Dom, you be phenomenal in there. He said, nope. 29 years, bro. I'm done. So I went to him. I said, yo, Dom, I got to go to South Carolina. There were seven people murdered, 30 wounded. I got to go in there by myself. I need you to watch my back. He couldn't say no. <laughs> I'm the homie. So he said, all right. So he came to watch my back. Didn't need him to watch my back. I needed him to come inside. But we went in, and we went to the prison where the riot was. And we went to the first cell. We talked to two guys. Went to the second cell. Talked. To, I'm like, yo, this is going to take forever. You got 2,000 people in this prison. I said, open the doors. He said, we can't open the doors. They'll kill each other. I said, open the doors. He said, man, they're going to kill each other. How, what are you going to do? I said, my God is bigger than their demons. Open the doors. Open all the doors, 300 guys came walking out of their cells. First time. They got their knives, they got their stuff. Dude said, who the hell are you? So I'm the motherfucker that got your door open. That's who the hell I am. Come on down and let's have this conversation. And we had a conversation about their attitudes, their behaviors, their wants, their dreams, their families. And we had a conversation about freedom, about going home and being successful. I spoke, Dominic spoke, the other homie spoke. 
over six days, we spoke at 10 prisons. We spoke to 8,000 prisoners coming out of their cells for the first time in five and a half months. Not one fight, not one stabbing, not one problem. Then the director came to me after and said, well, can you come and set up a program? And we came back to set up a program. And the director, Brian Sterling, was like, we're going to take former gang members <laughs> and give them charge of a housing unit full of gang members. A-Wake thought it was crazy. They said, you can't do that. And they told him all the reasons he couldn't. He said, well, we got to do something. And I believe in Andre. I believe in his message. And he's shown that the men believe in his message. And we moved in. We took over a housing unit. We moved all the gang leaders into one unit. And we started running programs. And what was our programs? We were taking Dan Sullivan books. We were taking Ben Hardy books. We were taking Michael Burnoff's books. We were taking Chris Voss's. Chris Voss's Never Split the Difference is one of the biggest books in my program to this day. Sean Stevenson books. You know I'm saying? We started bringing all the books. Jason Campbell's Meditation. We're bringing everything. Real high-end. No more garbage training. No more bottom line, scraped off the battle, you know what I'm saying, tutorials. We're bringing the best of the best to these guys. And they were eating it up. The philosophies, the understandings, the insight, eating it up. Like we've never been given the best trainings. We've never been given best information. We've only been given stuff to keep us incarcerated and oppressed. Dan Sullivan liberates. Joe Polish liberates. Chris Voss liberates. They don't oppress. The stuff that they had been getting was oppressive. It was misdirection. It was confusing. They were getting clear information from the best of the best in our country and around the world, and they responded to it. We've been open three and a half years. We've had one fist fight. There was a CO in another unit, not ours, being attacked by an inmate. Situation happened. He's in the process of being killed. And one of the guys from our program ran over and saved his life. And they asked him, why did you save his life? He said, I stand for what's right, and I'll die for what's right. All we did as a program was expand who he considered right or wrong in that box. Before, the CO wasn't in his box of people. We turned the CO into a person in his mind. And he stood up and saved that man's life. And if nobody else believes in our program, that officer's wife does. That officer's kids does. Because without the Academy of Hope, he wouldn't be here. And it's not us. It's the men. It's the men in the program who do the work. We have women, we have volunteers who come in and do the work. And it's phenomenal. I mean, CO told me one time when I was in the county jail, the best can be the worst if you just give them a chance. We've given them a chance and they've shown that they can be the best. Expectations are too low for them. And if you had to go back to yourself in elementary school, middle school, high school, do you believe that you could have reached that person? If you took me back to when I was in sixth grade, if you'd have gave me someone who taught me the fundamental understanding of being a musician, I'd be a musician right now. When I was a kid, my dad took me to a football field, and I thought I was going to get a chance to play football. But he just went there to collect some money or something, and I didn't get a chance to play. I believe I'd have been one of the greatest middle linebackers in NFL history. If I could have played football, I'd have been a middle linebacker, and I'd have been right up there with the rest of them for a multitude of reasons, not just being big on myself. That was my position. I never got a chance to play it because my dad didn't take me to football practice. Nobody paid me to go to the boys' club. 
I didn't need a million dollars spent on me through the corrections department. What I needed were clean socks, good guidance, and someone to help me heal my trauma. And that's what a lot of these kids need. Kidney garden, they just want a sandwich and a hug. And that's all they want. They'll do whatever you ask them to do. Homework, behave themselves, sandwich and a hug. We're not giving it to them. We can want to get them at 25 when they got six years in the penitentiary and a knife in their hand. Tell them, why won't he listen to us? Because when he was hungry, you didn't listen to him. When he was eight years old and hungry, we ignored him. Now he's 25 and the problem, you want him to listen to you. The time to get him to listen is when they're willing to listen and they're able to listen. So for the people listening to this podcast, and hopefully it's going to bother a lot of people, but I imagine a lot of them are gonna be asking themselves, what can they do? Like, what can they do to support this? What can they do to, to be a part of the solution, to bring about this type of change? If you wanna change things, you have to become active and tell yourself the truth. I can go right now to a local elementary school. We know right now, every gang member, every murderer, every drug dealer, every drug user, 10 years from now is sitting in elementary school right now. They're in K1 and K2, as cute as they wanna be. And they're sitting there innocent. And we know what's gonna happen because it's been happening forever and ever. We can tell you where the schools are coming from. We know exactly where the school that's gonna produce the next killer is. Exactly where the school that's gonna produce the next drug dealer is coming from. It's all the inner city public schools. If you walk around any penitentiary and say, where did you go to school? It's gonna be a public school. 99.9% of the people in prison went to a public school. And if they're black, they went to an inner city public school. So this is not a secret. This is not any rocket science. So we know right now there's a whole classroom full of K-1 kids that if we don't reach them, at some point they're going to reach out and touch us. We can go down and support that endeavor of educating and supporting that kid at that level versus waiting for them to turn 16 or 17 and start spending $50,000 a year to incarcerate them. My son's gonna go to Stanford. Stanford's 50,000. Stanford's cheaper than some prisons to house people. Florence ADX costs more than 50,000 a year. Pelican Bay costs more than 50,000 a year. Most shoe programs cost more than 50,000 a year. We're paying more to incarcerate people than it would to put them in college, the best colleges. And we know where they're coming from. They're not coming from Mars, they're not coming from out of space. They come from the inner city, K1s and K2s. I would love to see a group of soccer moms, white ladies from the suburbs, pull up on inner city school and demand that they teach those kids. Go in there and help them. I've been to enough suburbs. Policing works in the suburbs. The education system works in the suburbs. Why can't those who run the suburban schools or have the PTAs and those folks come across the bridge, come across the train tracks? If you're scared of... 18-year-old big black guys with machetes, cool, go to K-1 and help them early. Show them that you care. Come on. I mean, we can go to the root of it. Let's not go to the back end. If you ask me, Dre, there's 2.2 million people in jail and there's like 3 million people in K-1, save the babies. Grown men will find a way. Or they won't. Babies deserve a chance. So all the folks who are listening to this podcast, if you're unclear on what to do, call me. We've been waiting 400 years for this conversation. And I'll take every last call because the call needs to happen. And it starts in K-1. Starts in K-1. Starts in preschool. If we can get that right, come on. My son, 
I told you. Wife said to me, all my kids go to private school. He went to the right daycare. They get into the right preschool. They get into the right K-1. They get into the right elementary school. They get into the right middle school, high school, on the way to Stanford. Stanford starts at preschool, y'all. But everybody on this podcast knows that. Stanford, Harvard, wife, PhD from MIT, master's from Harvard. She understood what it took to get there. She went to the right preschool, the right elementary, the right middle, high school, all the way through to Harvard, all the way through to MIT. She knows it doesn't start at high school. It doesn't start at 12th grade. Harvard starts at preschool. We giving them a fair shot? <laughs> or we just cherry-picking the kids who happen to rise above by some strange mechanism in 11th grade in some inner-city school and letting them go? Education makes it all even. Now, going back to the very first story that you told when you're getting the hamburger and the shake, if somebody would have told you then, your son's going to go to Stanford, what would you have thought? A, I didn't have a son then. <laughs> B, I didn't have a wife then. <laughs> I didn't think I was ever getting out of prison then. So it would have been a hard sell. It would have been like, oh, you're just lying to me because I don't see myself out of prison. I don't see myself out of this life. I don't see myself in any other space but this. I'm saying the same way the man told me he's from a third world country, I thought I was from a third world existence. And that's what I believed. So I have to believe what goes along with that. If you'd have told me at any juncture prior to meeting my wife, I'd never thought that. When I came home from prison, what made Andre different? There was a student group at Harvard, all Christians. They went to these, all these Christian programs and they were all believers. And it was like this big student group between the Ivy League schools of religious people who actually went to Ivy League. And when they graduated, they said, what are we going to do with our faith? Are we going to go serve the man or are we going to go serve God? So you had like these 40 super Christians, some of the brightest people in the world, move into the inner city and start a church and an outreach center. So I ended up at that outreach center. MIT, Dartmouth, Northwestern, Yale, Princeton. They're all in the building. U Chicago. I came here and I'm sitting in a room with like super nerds. Super nerds. <laughs> and I learned how they think, how they process, how they work. And they learned how we think and how we process. And we just merged together. And we made some of the greatest policy ever made. But I learned so much from them. I actually married one of them. That's what I said. That's where my wife came from. How did you meet somebody with a PhD from MIT? I'm like, I went to church with her. <laughs> and the baseline is we merged and we created policy. We created change. Information is everything. We needed their view. They needed our view. And collectively, we made a difference. So for all the wonderful companies, how do we make a difference? Talk to the people on the ground. Talk to the people on the ground. And you'll never find them from the glass ceiling. From the glass tower, you're not going to find them. Because you should be scared to go in the hood. <laughs> you should be. So let's find a way to make the connection. And I've done experiential learning labs for London Business School for 20 plus years. Deutsche Bank, Daniel Foods, Lens Construction, British Petroleum, Ericsson Mobile, Lendlease Construction. I brought them all into the city and had them have real conversations with real people. And that's what it comes down to. Real conversations with real people. I'm working with a company out of Texas, um, Securus Technology, where I talked to you earlier about taking your podcast, taking this podcast and making it available to prisoners. So Securus has tablets where there's 500,000 prisoners sitting in the cell right now with tablets. And they can watch movies, they can listen to music and, and play games, but they're going to get your podcast. Real information from people who want to make a difference. Everybody's giving me their stuff. 
genius members, Joe Polish, a lot of people to give me stuff to make available, I can hit a button and 500,000 people are getting this information. And it's life-changing. You're going to change lives with this podcast. You say you got 100... Listen, you're going to save somebody's life with your podcast. Well, now that you told me, even when we were talking about this before, I mean, now my goal is to be the most listened to podcast in the penitentiary. In, in the penitentiary. Well, you have to beat me out because I got that right now. Oh, you have podcast. Okay. Okay. <laughs> well, the second most listened to. No, no, no. No one wants to be number two. So Listen, go for number one. <laughs> Healthy competition never hurt anybody. There you go. And in this, in this space, I mean, if you have one lesson or 20 lessons or one class or 30 classes, I mean, go for it. If you want people to change, you got to give them the real tools. So, Andre, as we come to a close, this being the Game Changing Attorney Podcast, what does being a game changer mean to you? Being a game changer to me means that I'm doing it right. I'm actually doing it right. I have three basic things that I lived by when I was a kid. Now I have three basic things I'm trying to get done. I'm going to die. I've come to grips <laughs> that people die in this world, and my turn is coming. And when I go, I've come to understand something. There's graveyards and there's tombstones. And I've been through enough graveyards, seen enough tombstones, and know that they write three basic things on your tombstone. After your name in a year, there's like three little sayings. First, it's going to say Harvard Fellow, because I did that. I became a Harvard Fellow in 2016. Second, I became an honorable son. I've done things in my father's hometown. I went back to my dad's hometown where they had to move out of for being black in the 60s and the 40s. I've gone back and I've done so much work in that city that they gave us a proclamation acknowledging my family. And I'm about to be hired by that city to be like the chief strategist officer to help replan and remap violence reduction and kids' growth in that city. My father's one of the happiest people on the planet, that his hometown has been acknowledged by his son. My mom, um, what's the point of being a businessman if you don't make money? I got a chance to go see my mom a few years back and said, when you pass, I know your biggest concern. Are all my kids going to be okay? And I told her, I will look out for my brothers and sisters. There will no one be homeless. There will nobody be hungry. There's no one going to be left out. We might not all meet up for Thanksgiving, but I made enough money that I can help them out. And I'm going to hold your kids down, my siblings. And she cried, and she was happy. Honorable son. My next and last thing that's going to go on my tombstone is ended mass incarceration. That's what I'm working on right now. And mass incarceration is not just people in prison. It's the white people trapped in the suburbs. It's the people trapped in little tiny towns. It's the people trapped with bad thinking. Mass incarceration is not just penitentiary for me because I walk in too many spaces where rich people just don't want to live anymore. I've seen too many rich people kill themselves. Anthony Bardone was one of my favorite TV shows. I could not imagine him not having a phenomenal life, but he didn't think so. He was in prison and we didn't see it. And he wanted to escape. There's so many people who are leaving us because they're in prison, who are living horrible lives. You only get one shot. I spent too many times in senior homes for people to say, I wish I'd have done it differently. If I could do this again, I would do it differently. Not wasted my life, but I didn't live my life. That's prison. To be 85 years old, sitting in a nursing home, wishing you'd done it differently. Mass incarceration is collective for people. I want to end mass incarceration. I want to free and liberate everybody so they can live and be who they want to be. I want to give a huge thank you to Andre Norman for taking the time to speak with us today. You know, what particularly resonated with me was when Andre said that your past does not have to dictate your future. By empowering people with the right information, we can start driving meaningful change. 
You've been listening to the Game Changing Attorney Podcast with me, Michael Mogul. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd really appreciate it if you can leave a review and share this podcast with at least one other ambitious law firm owner. And you know what? Maybe more than one. For more information on our interview with Andre Norman, see the show notes for this episode in your podcast app or visit GameChangingAttorney.com. And join us next time and we'll be speaking with U.S. Special Forces soldier, decorated war hero, and best-selling author, Brian Hendrickson. The beginning of your life and the end of your life are written. They're set in stone. But those pages in between, they're all blank. So it's how you're going to fill them out. So if this is how I'm going to die, it's already done. It doesn't matter if I'm in Afghanistan or at home. I will die this day. And there's nothing you can do to change it. So being in the front, if I get my face shot off or whatnot, it was going to happen that way because that's my ending chapter of my story. But I can control my environment. And I guess I like to have control. That's next time on the Game Changing Attorney Podcast. Oh,